sorry, I have my stopwatch on and it's uh, on the wrong setting. Well, it's going to run this way. That's okay. I'll read that too. I, I do that because I, I forget what time I start, so uh, it's a safer way to go. I'm very uh, honored to be here. Uh, our connection with Hattiesburg, as has been for many people, is passing through on the way to Florida, although Kay's brother, uh, Speedy, that's his real name, um, went to Southern. Uh, so we, I've always had an affection for your ministers who've been here. Um, many were friends of mine and, and still are, and so it's, it's really an honor uh, to be here at Hattiesburg. If you will turn in your Bibles to Romans 8, and if you want to use, if you don't have your Bible, you can use the Bible that's in the pew, and that's page 944. Now, we will read verses 12 through, I'm sorry, not 12. We'll read verses 14 through 23, but we're going to focus on verses 22 and 23. But you just have to have the context here, because this is all about you're being children and what your privileges are as children, what your future is as children. So this, this whole section is many times separated from what goes before because the glory spoken of is the glory of the children of God. So we begin in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. That's the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we pray that you would use this word to encourage us, use your word to give us hope and strength, for in hope we give ourselves away to you and to others in love. Oh, Lord, build us up in Christ set our vision upon what you intend for your children 
We ask this for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. You, we, we all have certain definition of our lives and who we are, and sometimes that definition or concept of ourselves has been damaged. For all of us, it's been damaged in some ways because we have to think differently about who we are in Christ Jesus. Think differently about ourselves so that we can live differently uh, before him. If we've had abuse and trauma uh, from whatever source, whether home or school or otherwise, uh, that affects how we view ourselves. It affects how we love other people. Well, here, Paul clearly defines what our lives are, and he defines it by the word glory. He talks about adoption and that we have access to God, and we can say, Abba, Father. We can say, basically, Daddy. We're so intimate with him. And then immediately he gets to, but if we're children, we are heirs jointly with Christ, and we'll be glorified with him. And then the rest of this section is about that glory, the glory of the children of God. So it defines our whole life. We are headed for final glory, But as we'll see in this passage, we're already experiencing that glory. And we, this is a great thing to wake up to every day, that I'm headed for glory and I'm tasting that glory even now. So that defines our very life. And one aspect of that glory that's after this passage is one that you know well, but I want to connect it with this, All things work together for good. And if you read that passage, all things work together for good so that finally we will be glorified. So nothing can stop this glory train, right? Nothing can interfere with God's intention because you're his children to taste glory every day of your life, increasingly in your life, and finally enter into the last glory. So, the importance of this glory is that where there's glory, where there's coming glory, there is hope. Always hope in the midst of whatever happens. There is hope. Hope even to begin to say, how does God want me to taste glory in the midst of this suffering and this trauma, this disappointment, this heartbreak? How does he want me to taste his glory And how does he want me to anticipate his glory? And then the importance also you'll see here is that all of creation waits for your glory. That's the sense of this in verses 18 and 19. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory. And he says, because the creation is waiting for that glory. How great is it? Everything you see in this world is standing on tiptoes waiting for the revelation of the glory of God's children. That's pretty big, you know. That's a pretty big deal. So there's just two basic points here is that creation groans in hope and then we groan in hope. Creation groans in hope, we groan in hope. So there's not much to remember. Groaning in hope is your title, right? And so 
we're all groaning to that end. It says that the whole creation has been groaning together. That means that every part of creation, that is all the parts of creation, uh, are groaning together in concert, so to speak. So that Phillips can translate, it's a symphony of size. Or the scholar Dunn can say the whole cosmos is in fractured chorus. First of all, or secondly, just to remember that every bit of suffering, of death, of sickness, disease, of mistreatment of one another, evil of every sort, throw in floods, hurricanes, fires, everything. All of that is the groaning of this world, the groaning, the aching of this world. But it's, these are not death pangs. It's not the idea that things are getting worse and worse and it's just going to all be destroyed one day. These are birth pangs. These are birth pangs. It's not the pain of seeing someone slowly die of cancer. It's the pain of a woman who's about to give birth to a new child. Totally different. And so from the start we learn in the midst of suffering, I've always got to bear in mind these are birth pangs. They're not death pangs. These are birth pangs that are going to issue into life. And that's because the ultimate destiny for creation has never been annihilation. It's always been transformation. It's not that the earth is going to be gone one day. It's that the earth will be renewed one day. One passage that seems to militate against this is Second Peter 3, where you can read that the earth is going to be burned up with fire. And for a long time, growing up, and, and as an early Christian, I thought, well, I, it's right there. The earth's burning up. It's gone, right? But the more I studied that passage, I saw that it's in parallel with the flood, and he's comparing what happened with the flood with the fire. And did the flood destroy the earth? Not hardly. It renewed the earth. It removed evil from the earth and gave the earth a new beginning. And so Peter says there, the fire, what he means there is that the fire purifies the earth. And he said, therefore, we await a new heaven and a new earth. And you could translate that a renewed heaven, a renewed earth. So that's the ending is a renewed earth. God loves his creation. He is not going to lose his creation to sin. He's going to redeem his whole creation. And it says here that the creation is not looking forward to, you know, a kind of annihilation, but it says the creation has been groaning until now in verse 21 for the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation is longing for that freedom. It's not waiting its death sentence. It's not going to be executed, so to speak. No, it's going to be set free. That's what Paul is saying here in this passage. And I think of uh, Jesus' great promise 
in Matthew 5, uh, where he said, the meek shall inherit the earth. Now, if the earth is going to burn up and be gone, it's not the greatest inheritance. It's like the owner of Blockbuster, let's assume that he's got the, all the stocks and he, he's, the, he's the private owner of Blockbuster and he hands it over to his son and says, Hun, this is yours. Blockbuster's, Blockbuster is yours. Two years later, what does he have? Nothing. So, and, and I can imagine if you'll allow the angels hearing this, knowing that the earth is going to be destroyed and they're like, <laughs> They're going to inherit the earth. Oh, that's a good one. You know, it's all going to be burned up. Well, obviously, if that is our inheritance, that's going to be preserved and renewed and given to us in a way we can't even imagine for us to inhabit, as we'll see, in our new bodies. And so creation groans in hope of this freedom. And it says in this passage, because uh, creation itself has been in bondage. It was put in bondage when man turned away from God through Adam and Eve. We abandoned God. Now, that put creation in a very difficult place. Because creation, we we no longer were going to receive creation from God and use it to his glory or obey him with it, or fellowship with him, or fellowship with him as we use it. Rather, we worshiped it instead of him. We focused on him it and ignored him, as Romans 1 talks about. So we've abused creation. And it's like creation got kidnapped by mankind, taken to an ugly hut in the woods, and his would-be masters are going to die anyway. That's how weak they are. Who are these pathetic people that brought me to this ugly hut? That's creation's situation. Because we're the kings and queens of creation. We're like an engine that fell off the track and it dragged the whole train with it. But when the engine is put back in that glorious final day, the whole train is going to be restored. That's why creation is waiting with anticipation for the revealing of the glory of God's children. Everything depends on that from a creation standpoint. I was standing in Birmingham years ago. I was probably in high school, and... You know, eagle, uh, eagle uh, cages now are much bigger, but still we're all a little pained that they can fly just so far, even in a large enclosure. But this eagle was in a tight cage. He could flap his wings, but his wings reached to maybe the end of the cage. And I was standing in front of him, and suddenly he just started flapping his wings hugely. And I was just... I mean, I I did feel like I had to stand against the power of his wings. And I liken that to the glory of creation as we see it. It, I'm I'm a creation guy. It it takes my breath away literally every day. I'm fascinated by every aspect of God's creation. But if that's creation in a cage, as we're seeing, this is creation in bondage, what's going to happen when he sprung loose 
and he soars. What is that creation going to be like? If this is creation in a wheelchair, so to speak, what's going to happen when it gets out of the wheelchair and starts running? Like Forrest Gump, he's in, you know, his braces, and the guys are chasing him, and he starts running. Run, Forrest, run! And the braces fall off, and he just starts running and hardly ever stops. That's creation. The braces are going to fall off, and creation's going to soar, and we're going to be right there at the head of it by God's grace. So creation groans, but we groan as well in hope. Our hope is encouraged because, and I, won't, I can't spend this long on this, but the idea of first fruits. Imagine you've got a whole uh, grove of oranges. Uh, it's a new breed. You're going to see how they're, they're doing, and you, this tree is ripe. You take an orange, you peel it, you take a bite into the first uh, wedge, and it just bursts in your mouth, sweetness and tartness. And you look and this grove that has no end, you think, this is the first fruit of all of this. All of this is going to taste like this and better and better and better. So we are tasting in all of our experience of the Holy Spirit here on earth, whatever aspect of, of joy and peace and comfort and awe, uh, whatever aspect of reconcilia- reconciliation and growth and change, every aspect that we taste of the Holy Spirit is a taste, a first fruit of what we will receive. So it's interesting that in suffering, we can think these are birth pangs of what's to come. And in all of our enjoyment of God, these are just first fruits of all that is to come. In both cases, God is pointing us forward, pointing us forward to what's coming. And The other part of our groaning is what do we groan for particularly? And he says it here in verse 23, and there's some surprising things about it. We wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul has all of this hope, the future of creation itself, and our final glory down to this thing. Our bodies are going to be changed. First tells you how important our body is to our humanity, right? It's not a shell. It's not a house in which we live. It's not just some uh, uh, cave that we live in for a while and leave. I say about certain funerals in the South that I've been to, and this is just how we talk in Alabama, not Mississippi, but here in Alabama, um, so the coffin's in front, and the minister will say something like, Bill is no, that's Bill, if you're not from the South. <laughs> I, by the way, when I went to Fort Worth, I was talking about some event in Jesus, and I said, and so he told Peter to go get a Cohen, and so and so and so and so, and they came up and said, what's a Cohen, you know? Oh, a Cohen, oh, a Cohen, Okay. That's a Jewish guy in New York, Cohen, you know. But So he says, Baal is no longer with us. Baal is with Jesus. Now that's true, but don't lose sight that that is Bill also. 
that is Bill, the dead Bill, <laughs> the dead part of Bill. And that's not good. And it's not good to put, have to put a dead body in a grave. That's not good. God's going to fix that. And that's why Jesus took upon himself flesh so that he would die in our flesh. He would be raised in our flesh to a new glorious body and so that he can bring us into that new glory that he has entered into. It's the whole point. Imagine suffering and going through all of bearing the weight of God's wrath so that we could taste glory. It's like a girl I told some people uh, about a girl 10 years old in our church giving her testimony in front of the session and we ask as usual so tell us about Jesus Christ who is he what do you believe about him you know and so she says well he was God and he became man and even though we had sinned so much against him he died for us who does that (laughs) and that's this right who does that to suffer infinitely so that we could taste glory in this life and have new bodies forever. God does. That's who does it. And isn't it interesting that he says our adoption, because we started with adoption. You've been adopted. Oh, I thought I already was adopted. But the culmination of that adoption, the final manifestation that you are his children, occurs at the redemption of your body. You have this inheritance, but this is what initial adoption is for. And without that final redemption of your body, adoption, the whole goal of adoption would be lost. It's like this statement in First Timothy, uh, First Thessalonians, two. He says, "To this he called you through our gospel, so that you would be forgiven of your sins." That's correct. That's that would be fine. To this he called you in the gospel, so that you would have a transformed life and you would fellowship with God. That's good. But this is what he says. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of Jesus Christ. And that, that means more, it means just what it says. Whatever glory Jesus has as a human being, that's the glory you will have. And it can be described as the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, as his deity, whole different matter, right? But he became a human being and died as a human being and was raised as a human being so that we human beings would get the same thing. And so you get this emphasis in Scripture, not of heaven, and heaven is amazing, to die and go to heaven, right? Paul said in in Philippians 1, It'd be better if I could go to be with Jesus. Far better, he said. But God's not called me to that yet. So I'm not undermining how glorious heaven is. We're we're spirits made perfect, Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 12. That in itself is going to be glorious. I'm sinless in heaven. I'm with Jesus directly in heaven. I'm with this crowd around the throne praising God. All great. But it also says in 
Revelation 6.10 that their martyrs are crying out, how long? We sang that today. How long? Do you know that that echoes in heaven or we're echoing heaven? And that in heaven, they're not sitting there, good, I'm here, it's all over, made it, you know, that kind of feeling we think of. No. I had a professor, rather energetic, I loved him, and he said, here are the people in heaven with, with big signs going, how long, how long, how long, right, to make the point. That Now, I don't think it's a painful how long. I think it's more like when you tell your children we're going to Disney World in three months and they can't wait. How long is it going to be? It's going to be three months. Next day, how long is it going to be? It's going to be two months and 29 days. Next day, how long is it? It's going to be two months and 28 days. And then you make a chart and let them mark it off. (laughs) You can't stand 90 days of how long. But God's heard how long for a long time, and he's going to answer it, both ours and those in heaven. Because the martyrs, he said, how long will it be till you vindicate our blood? And part of that is judgment, but part of that is being restored. Our blood is still in the ground. Our, we don't have our bodies. It's gone. How long is it going to be until we're restored? It again shows us how important our physical being is. That's one of the most glorious parts of the Bible that changed my life. So, when Peter writes this in 1 Peter 1, he says, Set your hope fully on the grace, not that you will receive when you die. He says, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or in Titus 2, he says, waiting for the blessed hope when we die and go to be with Jesus in heaven. No. Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we read in 1 Thessalonians 4 that those who've died will be brought with Jesus, their spirits, And then, to assure the people who are worried about them, he says, they will receive their new bodies first. And I just think that's so appropriate. Not that God cares what I think about it. But if you've already lost your body, you should be first in line, right? You should receive. And then he says, we will be transformed if we're here. So it's like if if Jesus came today... They would come with him. They would be in the A line of Southwest. We would be in the B line of Southwest. That's how it works. But that shows that everything, when they were asking this question, Paul says, you don't need to worry about them. They're in heaven. They're fine. They're fine. Don't worry about them. No, (laughs) clearly not. He says, don't worry. They won't miss the resurrection from the dead. They won't miss the transformation of our bodies that we're all looking forward to. So, in 1 Corinthians 15, we read how we now have a body of weakness and dishonor, and we're going to have a body of power and glory. And I don't know everything that means, but you can just say honor, a dishonor and weakness means we get old, we get sick, we have 
we fail in so many ways. We sin against each other. We're just rattled with so much. And now we don't ever hurt one another again. We love each other perfectly. We perfectly are, we're perfectly happy. When, when we work together in the new creation, there'll be perfect, glorious collaboration. I won't be jealous of what you accomplished. I'll be just as happy at what you do as what I do. We can't imagine those things. I've likened it to friends of ours whose three sons started working on a treehouse at their house. And they said for three, maybe four days, they stopped to eat and they stopped to sleep. But that was it. He said, I've never seen them happier in my life. Completely lost in this project of building this treehouse. And I think that's a little picture of what we will be and do when all of our capacities are raised to a place we cannot imagine. We have glorious and powerful bodies that we can't imagine. And we work in perfect collaboration. And we are lost in awe and joy in the presence of God and in fellowship with one another as we accomplish all that God has for us. What a life. It sure beats the cartoon. And this is kind of based on folk ideas of what heaven is and, sadly, some Christian ideas of what heaven is. But I love the cartoon where this guy's sitting on a cloud all by himself, just sitting there, and he says, I should have brought a magazine. <laughs> That's not God's future. It's a new heavens and a new earth, new bodies living out an eternal life with him. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would give us hope. We pray that you would set our hearts on the goodness of God that would bring all of this into our lives at such a cost of his own son. <clears throat> the goodness of love and love of a God who would store all of this up for his children who don't deserve to be children. But nonetheless, we've been made children by the grace of Jesus Christ. How we praise you, Lord. We honor you, a God of greatness, a God of love. May we entrust ourselves relentlessly to your will to fulfill all that you mean to do in our lives as we taste glory here and look forward to the future glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.